For most of this century, there has been a single story about global food security, that food insecurity existed outside U.S. borders, in low- and middle-income countries. And in these countries, food producers themselves were the most food insecure of anyone. This single story lent itself to a simple policy solution, increasing agricultural production in developing countries. It is still incredibly important to do this, but not only this. As demographics change, as geopolitics shift, as the world wrestles with the COVID pandemic, and as climate change causes temperature and weather extremes worldwide, today's food insecurity requires new solutions. Have policymakers kept up, or are they relying on yesterday's answers? Welcome to the Reset the Table podcast, where we'll make room at the table for fresh ideas for solving food insecurity around the world, and right here at home. I'm turning over the mic to the CSIS Global Food Security Program for today's episode. Hello, I'm Kimberly Flowers, the Executive Director of the Goldfarb Center for Public Affairs at Colby College in Maine. I'm also the former Director and Senior Associate Non-Resident of the CSIS Global Food Security Program and the CSIS Humanitarian Agenda Program. I am the guest host for this episode, and my co-host and colleague and friend, Jake Kurtzer, will be joining us. Jake is the director of the CSIS Humanitarian Agenda Program. Hi, Jake. How are you? Good, Kimberly. How are you? Nice to see you. Good to talk to you, too. We will be joined today by Alex DeWall. Alex is from Tufts University, and he's the executive director of the World Peace Foundation and also a research professor at the Fletcher School at Tufts University. And when I was talking to CSIS about being the guest host for this podcast, the first topic I wanted to cover was Ethiopia and what's happening there. And the first person I wanted to talk to was Alex. Alex has decades, many decades uh, career as being one of the foremost experts on the Horn of Africa. He has written over a dozen books and written many, many articles focusing in on that region, on things that related to humanitarian crisis and response, conflict and peace building. And of course, because of the crisis that has been happening in Ethiopia since last November, he has been an expert called upon by many people to help us unpack the complexities of what's happening there. The last time Alex and I spoke was when we were launching his book, Mass Starvation, The History and Future of Famine at CSIS. That was in 2018. There's a chapter in that book, chapter eight, the title being Ethiopia, No Longer the Land of Famine. Let's start there. Alex, does that chapter still hold true? And what's happening right now in Ethiopia, particularly in the Tigray region, which is the northernmost area of the country? The headlines are really grim. Tell us what is happening and what you're focused on right now in Ethiopia. Hi, Kimberly, and hi, Jake, and it's great to join you. I wish I could say it's a pleasure, but it's such a dismal subject that it's going to be a fairly downbeat conversation. So I've been working on this issue of famine in the Horn of Africa, including Ethiopia, since the mid-1980s. And in 37 years of professional engagement, the situation that we see in Tigray that we've been encountering over the last months is, quite frankly, the worst I've ever seen. Now, the reason why I entitled that chapter in my book as I did 
was that from 1991, when the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, the EPRDF, took power in, in Addis Ababa, the one signal achievement of that government was conquering famine and reducing poverty. There are many, many failings of that government, but one thing of which they can be proud and that they were really recognized correctly by the international community was that Ethiopia, having been in the 1970s and the 1980s, the land of famine, it, that had changed. And actually, when the EPRDF moved into Addis Ababa almost exactly 30 years ago, in his very first press conference, the leader, Malasanawi, was asked, what was your ambition? What is your ambition for Ethiopia for the time you're in power? And he responded that Ethiopians should eat three times a day. And actually, he achieved that. He achieved a quite astonishing record of poverty reduction and food security. And the signal achievement was in 2015, when there was a very widespread and severe drought that affected 20 million people, so that international food aid was needed to support that number of people. And the Ethiopian government actually funded 70% of the drought response in that year. And the response was not only rapid, but it was efficacious in that what it did was it helped farmers stay on the land, it helped them preserve their assets, it kept intact the productive base of the afflicted communities. So Ethiopia had demonstrated that even under very serious adversity, it was able to overcome that and stop famine. And ironically, the leaders of that response are individuals who are in power today. So they know how to do it. Now, what's happening in Tigray? Well, what happened in Tigray is that a war broke out in November. Responsibility for the war is shared. Responsibility for the atrocities that followed, the conduct of hostilities, and the catastrophic food security and humanitarian situation that followed is not shared. It is exclusively the responsibility of a coalition of Ethiopian federal forces, militia from the next door Amhara region, and their coalition partner, the Eritrean army. And they mounted a campaign of pillage and starvation. Every crime related to starvation on the books was committed, was perpetrated by these forces. And a number of statements indicate that really that was their intent. The intent was to reduce Tigray to destitution, to dependence upon an international pipeline of humanitarian aid that they could turn on and off at will. Alex, can I ask you to both situate the food insecurity situation in Tigray now within the historical context of the various different moments in time where we've seen acute need like this in Ethiopia, and then to talk about the concept of famine. There are technical terms that the food security community uses to assess the need, you know, the IPC4, IPC5, and yet it sometimes requires this very evocative word of famine to spur people to action. Why do you think that is, and are we overstating or understating the case in Ethiopia today? In the past, the great historic famines in Ethiopia, 1973, 1984 in particular, were caused by a mixture of natural adversity, such as drought, 
and government action, feudalism in the case of 1973, counterinsurgency and the use of famine in, as a weapon of war in 1984-85. This current situation is very different. There was no natural adversity. There was a locust plague, but it really did not actually have a serious effect on food security. This is entirely 100% man-made. Now, one of the problems that we have, and we have encountered this in Tigray in a particularly acute form, is that the professionalization and institutionalization of the mechanisms for measuring, diagnosing food insecurity and responding to it have become entrapped in particular models. They rely on particular forms of data. And when those data are absent, then the institutions, the authorities are reluctant to declare them. They're reluctant to say how bad it might be. So the key to this is the IPC, the Integrated Food Security Phase Classification System, which is run by international donors, including the United Nations, in collaboration with the host government. This collects data on malnutrition, on food availability and food consumption, on mortality, and a host of other things too. And when certain thresholds are met in a specific geographical area, 20% of the population in a particular locality meeting certain thresholds for child malnutrition, mortality indicators, and collapse in food systems, then IPC level 5, which is famine, is declared. Now, the problem with this is that when those data are not there or are unreliable, then the IPC system doesn't work. And of course, if a famine is being inflicted deliberately by starvation crimes, and we can come on to the types of crimes a bit later, of course, those authorities are not going to want the information to come out. And indeed, this is what exactly what has been happening in Tigray since the onset of the war. There's been extreme restriction on journalists going there. There's been restriction on humanitarians going and doing their basic job and a, a massive clampdown on all forms of humanitarian information. And this has been hugely frustrating to humanitarians who see a famine. They know from a lifetime's experience, this is a famine. And yet they are constrained by these um, institutional and, and data requirements from calling it what it is. I have a follow-up question specifically on that. I mean, it seems like UN officials are really clear that they know there's already pockets of famine there. What would you say? I mean, I understand the issue as far as the system of the IPC and how it's so difficult to get the kind of data that's needed to make that declaration. But do you feel that we should definitely be saying that there are pockets of famine already happening? Is it already too late? It's already too late for famine. There's no doubt. I mean, Mark Lowcock, who left in June as the head of UNOCHA, the Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs, was very candid in his briefings to the UN Security Council. He said, this is famine. The conservative estimate that was put forward by the UN was 350,000 people already in famine. The best estimates are that thousands of children, because two-thirds of famine mortality is among children under five, thousands of children are dying every month of starvation and, and closely related causes. I think anybody who has been working in the field of humanitarian crisis over recent decades cannot but come to the conclusion 
that this is famine. If this is not famine, then the word famine has no meaning. I want to go back, though, a little bit to the politics, because, of course, a lot of your writings talk about the transactional politics and the political marketplace that creates these situations. And you talked about the Ethiopian forces, Amhara forces, Eritrean forces, but really the person in charge of all of that is the prime minister. And you're looking at someone who won a Nobel Peace Prize in 2019, right? So how does he go from that to using hunger as a weapon of war? And and can you just tell us more of your thoughts on the political leadership that's manifesting all of this? Well, when Abiy Ahmed was elevated to the leadership some three years ago, he was hailed as a reformer. And there were some very straightforward reforms that he could undertake, which were actually already mandated by the ruling EPRDF. But what he did was he made an unrealistic number of promises to different constituencies. It all went to his head. He thought he was infallible. He could do anything. And he set about dismantling and weakening key institutions of the state, including the ruling party itself. And his most serious error regarding Tigray was that he made peace with Isaiah Safawaki in Eritrea, which was a necessary move, a move that was not his move, actually. He was asked to do it by the party. But the peace he made was not really a peace. It was a security pact. And it was kept completely opaque. It was kept secret. And after a peace agreement is made with two countries, one of which, in this case Eritrea, is a dictatorship, you would expect that country to move towards democracy, expect it to begin to demobilize its army. Not a bit of it. Isaias actually consolidated control. He used the lifting of sanctions consequent on the peace agreement to rearm and re-equip. And he was quite explicit that his goal was to remove the Tigrayans, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the vanguard of the EPRDF, as what he said was a political threat. So the politics of Ethiopia were the combination of, if you like, the deregulation of politics within Ethiopia itself, which was, as in many such transitions, a sort of opening of the Pandora's box of many different forces, combined with an alliance with a dictator next door who had an agenda of exterminating the Tigrayans as a political community and as a group that could stand against him. And Abiy was the junior, and still is, the junior partner in that coalition. So when they two went to war in Ethiopia, what I think many thought was just a political operation to remove the TPLF leadership, mutated almost immediately into a war of starvation and destruction targeted against the people of Tigray. Crimes of pillage, crimes of rape, of massacre, of thoroughly dismantling the entire economic and food security infrastructure of Tigray. I'd like to pivot to international politics of a different sort. You talked about the weaponization of the aid and observers can identify that the entirety of the denial of access that you've described is at the hands of the militaries and the political leadership in Ethiopia. And yet there have been some criticism leveled at the UN for not effectively applying the necessary pressure, both at the political levels on the government of Ethiopia and within the humanitarian infrastructure of the United Nations to negotiate access collectively to make 
access to the civilian populations in need a priority. How do you see the UN's response so far? How do you grade it? And what steps could be taken to improve the response where access is available and to get access where it's not? There are a number of levels and a number of stages of this. Until the beginning of July, eight months into the crisis, the UN Security Council did not discuss Ethiopia and the crisis in Tigray once in public session. The first session was on July 2nd, and that is a scandalous shortcoming. And the UN Secretary General is partly culpable for this. He did not raise it. There are a number of mechanisms that he could have used to raise Ethiopia and the crisis to the UN Security Council, including Resolution 2417 on armed conflict and hunger. And one gets the sense that the UN in-country was also captured and intimidated. And there are understandable reasons for this. And Ethiopia has not been a country of humanitarian crisis and conflict. It's been a country in which the ethos has been developmental. So the UN country teams, including World Food Programme, have all been working in very close partnership with the country and the personnel, the institutional relationships, etc. they have. It's very hard for them to pivot from a position of working in close partnership and support of a government to one in which they say, actually, the government is the problem. It's different in a number of other countries, like next door in South Sudan or in Somalia, for example. And we see among the diplomatic community and the UN community in Addis Ababa a readiness throughout to give the benefit of the doubt to the government, even when it did not warrant it. And I think fairly soon there's going to have to be a very thorough assessment of the shortcomings of the international response, because this was foreseen. This was predictable almost from day one when the war broke out. And yet the response has been politically and institutionally very, very slow and inadequate. What other advice would you give Alex in terms of the response or in terms of solutions? There's short-term and long-term you know, solutions to this. Obviously, the peace and the root causes are what really needs to be addressed. But what advice do you give to whether that's the head of UN agencies or others of what really needs to happen to remedy a situation, even though it's already too late for oh so many? Let's take the Tigray famine in two phases. The phase from November of 2020, when the war broke out, until June of 2021, was one in which the coalition forces were perpetrating an extraordinary array of very, very brutal starvation crimes. Pillage, the systematic looting and destruction of economic infrastructure, ethnic cleansing of some of the most productive areas of Western Tigray, so cutting Tigray off from the areas that actually were crucial in feeding the main part of Tigray, which is a food deficit area in the highlands. The massive destruction of health infrastructure and water infrastructure. And if we take the crime of starvation as defined in international humanitarian law and international criminal law, it's the destruction of objects indispensable for the survival of the civilian population. So not just food, but also water, also health care. And also maternal care. One of the starvation crimes that is particularly horrendous has been widespread rape 
and extraordinary levels of really brutal sexual violence and torture. And a woman who is a survivor of that kind of assault may be unable to care for herself. She's probably unable to care for her children. And there are tens of thousands of unaccompanied children because their mothers have been in captivity, in garrisons, or are now traumatized, often terribly badly wounded in hospitals and safe houses. And adding to their trauma is the fact that they don't know what's happened to their children, and we don't know what's happened to their children. And then the fear of rape means that women and girls are not able to undertake essential activities, day-to-day -day activities. And on top of that, if that wasn't bad enough, the soldiers were moving from village to village, telling the villagers, you will not cultivate, you will not plough, you will not harvest, we will punish you if you do. That's the type of starvation crime that we have very rarely seen in history. Part of this was limiting humanitarian aid. As of June, of the five or so million people in need of humanitarian assistance, less than 20% were getting it. And many of those who were getting it were getting it far too infrequently. So the situation was, on every count you can imagine, exceptionally bad. And what the UN seemed unable to do was to invoke all those provisions under the different resolutions prohibiting sexual violence, prohibiting attacks on aid workers, prohibiting the use of starvation as a weapon to try and stop what was happening. Now, what happened in June was quite astonishing and in many ways very unexpected, which is that the Tigrayan resistance that had basically starting from zero managed to mobilize a guerrilla army that defeated the Ethiopian National Defense Forces very decisively in a series of battles in June, and the Ethiopian army essentially withdrew. And then the Eritrean army withdrew without fighting. It didn't want to suffer the same fate, which meant that this population of five million that had been subjected to this brutal occupation was now, as it were, freed. It was now under the control of the Tigray Defense Forces, its own community, its own community army, if you like. So those abuses, that destruction, that rape, that pillage stopped. But what it was replaced by was a siege, a siege of the entirety of Tigray. The government of Abiy Ahmed, after it retreated, declared what it called a humanitarian ceasefire, which was really just a face-saving piece of rhetoric to cover the military debacle and to move the crisis on to a new phase because it, Prime Minister Abiy made it quite clear that his intention was to cut off Tigray from any form of aid, any form of services. And in the last days of June and the early weeks of July, the attempts by the international community to get aid into Tigray were systematically thwarted and slowed down so that just the tiniest trickle of aid came in. So this is a different kind of starvation crime, the siege of an entire population of about 5 million who have already been reduced to the point of famine. Can I ask you, this situation is extreme, but if you pull out a wider aperture, your scholarship looks at the horn and elsewhere around the world, we've seen this kind of weaponization of aid emerge in conflicts in Syria, in Yemen, and elsewhere around the world. 
in your first answer, you talked about how the international aid system has professionalized and the UN system has these capacities. And yet it almost seems that as that has happened, the denial of aid or weaponization of aid has also increased. How do you see us getting past this environment where the international community in some cases has the capacity to respond but is blocked? What steps should we be thinking about as policymakers, as advocates, as educators to try to get to a better place with respect to responding to the needs of civilian populations in situations of conflict? That's a great question. The big picture, if we look back over 150 years of famine, and this is one of the themes of my book, Mass Starvation, is that the famines due to natural adversity and government ineptitude or, or, or lack of capacity have been declining. The famines that we have been seeing over recent decades are more and more those caused by war or terrible government policies, and increasingly war, government economic policies, such as those seen in, in, in Mao Zedong's China or Stalin's Russia or Pol Pot's Cambodia. Those types of policies are vanishingly rare now, North Korea being the possible exception. So war is overwhelmingly the cause of these crises today. And you mentioned um, Yemen, Syria. We could also mention Somalia, South Sudan, northeastern Nigeria, and even parts of uh, DR Congo as well, as other cases where we see variants on this. But this basic reality, that famine is not just a byproduct of war, but increasingly an instrument of war, while it's being recognized in the formal resolutions and instruments of international humanitarian law, international criminal law, and even resolutions at the UN Security Council, has not been absorbed into the humanitarian response architecture at the highest level. There is a great deal of expertise within the United Nations and among NGOs about tactically how to provide aid in situations of conflict. They've actually got very good at negotiating the types of access that are needed. But at the higher level, if the political will is not there, that expertise means nothing. The host government or rebel forces are quite capable of bringing the entire system to a halt. So the key to this is action at the highest level in multilateral institutions, especially the United Nations, putting back that spirit of humanitarian multilateralism into the United Nations. And also recognizing, I think, what has been achieved, the astonishing successes in reducing famine, in preventing humanitarian emergencies. It was a tremendous achievement. And that achievement was not properly recognized and that made it, I think, very easy for it to be undermined and rolled back. I'm really thankful for you sharing your wisdom and your expertise on a very grim situation that's happening. It saddens me to hear someone like you say that this is the worst that you've ever seen. That doesn't give me a lot of hope, but we'll see where Ethiopia moves forward. I think we are at something of a sort of moment of truth about the world order and the crisis in Tigray, the famine, the extraordinary atrocities, really point the finger at the fundamental morality that underpins the multilateral world order. And if we lose sight of that, 
then I fear that the kinds of transgressions, the kinds of ethics-free world that we've seen in Ethiopia over recent months may be replicated elsewhere. Thank you, Alex, for your scholarship and for your continued writings on this issue. In Washington, we rely on people outside of the bubble as much as our colleagues inside the bubble to keep us focused on the key issues of the day. So I look forward to working with you and our colleagues elsewhere to try to remedy the situation. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's been great to be with you. Thank you, everyone, for listening and tune in next time for the next Reset the Table podcast. That's it for today's episode of Reset the Table. You can subscribe on Apple or Spotify and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Food. Until next time.